You're listening to the Good Samaritan Anglican Church Podcast. The following sermon was recorded on August 19th, 2018. A reading from the Gospel of John. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread that the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Ask the disciples in verse 52 of the gospel today. How can this man give us his flesh to eat? That's a pretty reasonable question if you think about it. We don't normally talk about giving our flesh for other people to eat. It's not something that often comes up in in normal day-to-day conversation. Um, And I don't usually invite you to to eat my flesh, uh, because that would kind of hurt. I don't don't really want you to do that, so please don't. Um, But Jesus is teaching his disciples, and he tells them that they need to eat his flesh and drink his blood. This is a hard saying. It's so hard, in fact, that many of his disciples turned away from him. If we look just after the gospel passage today in verse 66, it says, After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. It was too much for them to to bear, too much for them to understand. It was beyond their grasp. What was Jesus talking about? Talking about his flesh and his blood as, as drink and as food. That seems weird. It's kind of creepy, actually. These words about eating Jesus' flesh and drinking his blood would have been shocking to the hearers. And if you really take them literally, they're kind of shocking to us even today. When we look at the Old Testament, there are a number of things it has to say with regard to cannibalism. And that's really what this sounds like, doesn't it? It sounds kind of like cannibalism. And so first of all, we can look in the, uh, the book of Genesis, when Noah and his family have come out of the ark, and they are settled on dry land, and God gives them every plant and every moving thing to eat. But he instructs them not to eat the blood that's in that flesh. And by here saying everything that moves, he's not talking about people, he's talking about the animals. And then we move on to Leviticus in the law. And in the law, it clearly prohibits the eating of flesh with blood in it. 
This was a really important thing because uh, blood was equated with life. And so God instructed his people never to eat the blood in the animals, but only to eat the flesh. And so in Leviticus chapter 17, beginning at verse 10, it says, If anyone of the house of Israel or of the strangers who sojourn among them eats any blood, I will set my face against that person who eats the blood, and I will cut him off from among his people. For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you for, given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement for, by the life. Therefore I have said to the people of Israel, No person among you shall eat blood, neither shall any stranger who sojourns among you eat blood. So that's pretty clear. God commanded his people in the Old Testament not to eat blood. They could eat meat, certain kinds of meat, but they couldn't eat blood. And then if we, as we move even further on in the Old Testament, the only places where cannibalism is mentioned is in the context of the judgment of God. In the context of things becoming so severe and famine becoming so severe or the siege on Jerusalem becoming so severe that people will actually eat other people's bodies. Gross, I know. But it's not a positive thing in the Old Testament. And so you can see why these disciples would be so shocked as Jesus stands before them and says, you must eat my flesh and you must drink my blood. And it's not just the Jews who would have been offended, the Romans were offended by this too. In fact, one of the early uh, criticisms against the church, one of the early reasons for the persecution of the church was a misunderstanding of the Eucharist. And so the Romans really thought that the Christians were cannibals. That was a, a charge they brought against the Christians, saying that they eat flesh and they drink blood, not understanding the reality of the Eucharist. So why was Jesus talking in this way? Was he saying this uh, to have a, a shock effect, to, to get people to open up their ears? Well, if he did, he turned a lot of people away. So I, I don't think that was his intention. I think Jesus was making a visceral point about being united to him. About how union with him is the most important thing we can achieve as Christians. Not really that we achieve it, he achieves it in us. But that union with him, taking Jesus into ourselves, is what it means to be a Christian. And as he's making this point, he was also pointing to the future institution of the sacrament of communion, where we eat his body and we drink his blood, something we do each and every week as we come together to celebrate the Eucharist. The Synoptic Gospels meaning Matthew, Mark, and Luke, are all kind of in parallel with one another. And so when you look at the outline of Mark as compared with Matthew and Luke, you see a lot of similarities. You see uh, sometimes verbatim quotes one from the other. But the Gospel of John kind of stands out as the oddball among the four Gospels. It doesn't line up clearly with the other three. It tells the same story. It still speaks the truth of Jesus, but it tells different accounts about the life of Jesus. And it chooses to include different things about what Jesus taught and what Jesus did. And John himself doesn't claim to have recorded everything that Jesus did. He just said, I've recorded these things so that you may believe that Jesus is the Son of God. So in this Gospel of John, one of the main differences between it and the Synoptic Gospels is there's no institution of the Lord's Supper. 
When you read about the Last Supper, which is recorded in John, you read about uh, Jesus and his prayer for his disciples. You read about Jesus washing the feet of his disciples. You read about Judas uh, leaving that meal to go betray Jesus. But we don't actually see Jesus taking bread, breaking it, giving thanks for it, and saying, this is my body. We see that in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, but we don't see it in the Gospel of John. In the Gospel of John, this chapter, chapter 6, coming just after the, the, the uh, miracle of the loaves and fishes, the feeding of the 5,000, this is where we see Jesus teaching about the Eucharist. And he's teaching about it before it actually comes into institution. This is, is happening sometime before that Last Supper, sometime before they came to Jerusalem and had that last Passover together. But many Christian scholars for many years have pointed to this text and seen Jesus talking about the Eucharist here. So what is the sacrament of communion? What is it all about? Why is it so important that we come together and we we share in this sacrament each and every week? Well, first we need to talk about what sacraments are. Since the early years of the church, sacraments have been defined as outward and visible signs of inward and spiritual grace. So they're outward things that we can see that point to a reality underneath the surface that we can't see. And they give us an assurance that we have received the invisible grace, the inner grace, because we can interact with the physical things, things that we can touch and taste and smell and see, things that we can interact with with our senses. Because we are physical people. God gave us physical bodies. We live in a physical world. And God knows that sometimes we need to see something to have a, a belief in it. And so he gives us sacraments. He gives us water for baptism. He gives us bread and wine as his flesh and blood so that we can touch and taste and interact with these things and know that we've received the grace that's underneath. All around us, uh, you see, especially over here on uh, 23, right? You see the toll road going in and you see the sun pass signs uh, telling us that pretty soon we're going to have to pay tolls when we get on there. But you can't pay a toll at a toll booth anymore. That's, that's going by the wayside. Nobody does that anymore. No, you know, very few people even carry cash. And so I've, I've had the experience a number of times of rolling up to that, that uh, automatic toll booth with the, the big cone that you're supposed to chuck some change into and, and pay the toll. And I haven't had the change. And I've, I've had to pay hefty fines because I, I had to roll through the toll booth without paying my, my toll. But now we have SunPass which is pretty awesome when you think about it. You roll up to the toll booth, you don't even stop. And then all of a sudden, a lighted sign pops up that says, thank you, and you're on your way. It's pretty cool. Now, how do you know that your toll has been paid? Do you get a receipt? No. It doesn't even actually tell you how much toll you paid, which is kind of scary when you think about it. All it says is, thank you, and you get a sign that lights up. And if you think about it, that's a little bit like the reality of sacraments. The outward and visible sign of paying the toll is that light saying, thank you. The inward reality, the the thing underneath the surface is that your toll has been paid, your credit card has been charged, and money has been taken out of your account. You don't see any of that happening. No physical money changes hands, but it happens nonetheless. And the outward visible sign, the way that you know you paid your toll and that you're not going to get a fine, is that light blinks on and says, Thank you. 
That's what it's like with sacraments. So what's the outward invisible sign of communion, of Eucharist? It's the bread and the wine that we touch and taste and see. And Jesus tells us that when we eat this bread and when we drink this cup, we are sharing, we are participating in his body and participating in his blood. Paul tells us that this is truly a participation in the body and blood of Jesus. So what is the inward and spiritual thing signified by this bread and this wine? The spiritual thing signified is the body and blood of Christ, it says in the Catechism, which are truly taken and received in the Lord's Supper by faith. And then beyond that, the next question, question 113 in the Catechism asks, what benefits do you receive through partaking of this sacrament? And the answer is, as my body is nourished by the bread and the wine, I receive the strengthening and refreshing of my soul by the body and blood of Christ. And I receive the strengthening and refreshing of the love and unity I share with fellow Christians with whom I am united in the one body of Christ. So just as when you go home after this service and you eat your lunch, your body will be filled up with food that you need to sustain the life of your body, so also we need spiritual food. We need to feed on Jesus himself. And Jesus tells us that this spiritual food nourishes us, nourishes our souls, strengthens us for our Christian life, and unites us with fellow believers in the body of Christ. The church is called his body. When we look at Paul's teaching about, uh, about the Eucharist in 1 Corinthians, just a chapter later, we see Paul talking about the body of Christ. And so there's a strong connection between our unity as Christians God drawing us together. And St. Augustine actually talked about the importance of even the symbols that Christ used in this, bread and wine, both of which are the products of a collection of a multitude into one thing. When you look at bread, how is bread created? It comes from wheat, generally, and wheat is grown in a field. And it comes from all of these individual pieces of grain on individual stalks. It's all harvested. It's all put together, it's all crushed together and turned into flour, and then that is mixed together and made into a loaf of bread. And you don't have a, a cup of wine from just a grape. Wine comes together from whole clusters of grapes, which are crushed together and, and, and then writ, uh, they run together into a single vessel where they're fermented and they become wine. And so in the Eucharist, God is drawing all of us together in him, making us part of his body, and uniting us to one another. But he's also, even more importantly, uniting us to himself. Verse 55 of the Gospel today says this. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Unless you eat of this bread, I'm sorry, for my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. What is this word abiding? Why does Jesus talk about abiding here? When we eat his flesh and we drink his blood, we abide in him. Jesus is literally offering himself to us. My flesh is true food. My blood is true drink. 
Feed on me. Take me into yourself. Christ himself is really and truly present to us in this sacrament. Exactly how he's present is a little bit of a mystery. How bread and wine become his body and blood is something the church has debated for years and years and years. The how is not so much important as the what. That Jesus is truly present to us and that we get to feed on him as we eat this bread and drink this cup together. And just as a husband and wife offer themselves to one another and become one flesh, as it says in the institution of marriage all the way back in the beginning in Genesis, so also Jesus offers himself to us that we might become one with him, fully united to him. Jesus is the bridegroom and the church is the bride. And when we look at Ephesians, uh, in the, the verses that follow the passage that we read today, we get down to where Jesus talks about this one flesh union of husband and wife. It says at the end of chapter 5, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Directly quoting from Genesis. But then Paul goes on to say, This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Jesus is the bridegroom. The church is his bride. And all of, all of history is pointing towards the final culmination where Jesus welcomes his church into heaven to be with himself. And he is fully and truly united with the church. And there's a heavenly marriage banquet that takes place. And this, too, is something that we think about in the context of the Eucharist. As I invite you to come forward for communion, I usually say, Behold the Lamb of God, behold him who takes away the sins of the world. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. We are being married to Jesus. We are being united to him as we feed on his flesh and drink his blood. And then back to this word abiding in verse 56. What does it mean to abide? Another way to translate it in the NIV is to remain. Remain in me. The Greek word here is meno. And other ways to translate this word include remain and stay and reside. And so when we abide in Christ, we reside in him and he in us. He comes and takes residence inside of us and we come and take residence inside of him. We are mingled together. We are fully united with one another. This is another way of saying that we as Christians are in union with Christ. We are in Christ. Cyril of Alexandria, who was one of the early church fathers, uh, used the image of wax to talk about this. And he says, if one joins two pieces of wax, one will see that the, that the one has become part of the other. In a similar manner, I suppose, the person who receives the flesh of our Savior Christ and drinks his precious blood shall be one with him. If you take two candles and you melt the wax together, can you see any difference between the two pieces of wax? They don't remain separate pieces of wax. They're fully mingled together. They become one with one another. And that's what happens to us as we are united to Jesus. This union is first achieved through baptism, another sacrament. As water is poured on us and we're baptized into Jesus in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, we are adopted into God's family. We're made members of the church. We're united to Christ. And so the Eucharist is our ongoing reaffirmation 
of what happens to us in baptism. Each and every time we receive, we are recommitting our lives to him. And this is not unlike the altar call in the Baptist tradition, where you feel convicted and you have to recommit your life to the Lord, and so you come down to the front of the church offering yourself back to the Lord. And that's what we do in the Eucharist. We offer ourselves to God, and he offers himself to us, that we might be reunited and have that union in Christ renewed. When I pray after receiving communion, I usually say something like this. Lord Jesus, thank you for feeding me with your body and blood. And then quoting from John, help me to decrease and you to increase, so that I may no longer live, but you would live in me. Quoting then from Paul in Galatians. By the power of the Holy Spirit and to the glory of God the Father. As we are in relationship with Jesus, the goal is for us to diminish, to decrease, and for Jesus to increase in us so that we might no longer live. Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. That's what we want as Christians, for Christ to live in us. And feeding on Jesus helps us to become like Jesus, because you are what you eat. You've probably heard that before. You are what you eat. And nowhere is that more true than in the Eucharist. Because in the Eucharist, we take on Jesus' flesh, and we are made one with him. Verse 53, Jesus says, back to John. Verse 53, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Jesus is the only source of life for us. And just like your bodies need to be nourished with physical food to sustain you, so also we need Jesus in us to sustain us spiritually and to give us eternal life. Eternal life that begins right now and extends into all of eternity. Abundant life, good life, full life, joyous life. That's the life that Jesus offers as he offers us himself. But we can't find it in anything but him. If you eat junk food your whole life, it won't actually nourish you, and your body will diminish, and you'll ultimately die because you didn't receive the right nutrients that you needed. And it's the same thing spiritually. We need the spiritual food of Jesus to feed us, to be at union with him. And without Jesus, we all perish spiritually. And we all don't receive eternal life unless we receive it in him. Those who eat Jesus' flesh, who are united with, with Christ, will have eternal life. And Jesus says in verse 54, I will raise him up at the last day. That's what we want to do. We want to be in Christ so that we can be raised up at the last day, as Jesus promises. And then in verses 57 and 58, he says, As the living Father has sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus' life comes from the Father, and our life comes from Jesus. 
when we feed on Jesus, we will have eternal life. And so back to those disciples who turned away from him. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying, who can listen to it? And then in 66, after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. But then Jesus turns to the twelve, his apostles, and he says, Do you want to go away as well? And Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And while there are aspects of the Christian life that are hard, that are challenging, where else can we go? Because there's nowhere to find life except for him who is life itself, the way, the truth, and the life, Jesus Christ. Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. So as we continue in the service, let us feed on his flesh. Let us drink his blood that we might be united with him and united with one another as his body, the church. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have given us your Son, Jesus Christ. And we thank you, Jesus, that you offer yourself to us in this heavenly meal. We thank you for what you've done for us on the cross. And we thank you that each and every time we feed on your flesh and drink your blood in the Eucharist, that you unite us to you and unite us to your sacrifice, making us new and renewing our relationship with you. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to become more like you. That you would help us to decrease and you to increase. So that we would no longer live ourselves, but you would live in us. To the glory of God the Father. Amen. Amen. This has been a production of Good Samaritan Anglican Church in Middleburg, Florida. For more sermons, sermon notes, and information about our congregation, please visit www.goodsamaritananglican.org slash sermons. If this podcast has been helpful to you, please subscribe and leave us a review with your favorite podcast player. Thank you for listening. God bless you.